Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Over the last several weeks, we've been working or we've been looking and working at some of the significant moments in life that define us, that direct us, and that distinguish us as individuals. Often, there is a ceremony involved with those moments like graduation that we talked about last week or baptism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Today, we're going to look at the oldest human institution of all, marriage. And we're going to specifically look at the spiritual significance of a marriage ceremony. Heard about a little girl that whispered to her mother during a wedding ceremony, Mommy, why is the bride always dressed in white? The mother whispered back, because white's the symbol of purity and happiness. This is the happiest day of her life. Little girl whispered back, and why is the groom always dressed in black? Unfortunately, joyous wedding ceremonies are often followed by darkness and gloom. Over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators, which are empirical descriptions of marriage health and satisfaction in the U.S., have been in steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today only 60% are. Most tellingly, over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were in 2008. All of this shows an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture. And this is especially true for younger adults. According to a Census Bureau survey taken in 2018, only 35% of 25 to 34-year-old men were married, which is a rapid plunge from 50% in 2005. Young adults believe their chances of having a good marriage are not great. And even if the marriage is stable, there's the horrifying prospect that it will become boring. Comedian Chris Rock once asked, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And many young adults believe those are indeed the two main options for them. The institution of marriage isn't respected much today, and the traditional family is under relentless attack on many cultural fronts. Joshua Baker, spokesman for the Marriage Law Project, asked, is marriage a religious ceremony? Is it a civil package of benefits and rights that the government confers upon people? Or is it really the foundational institution which has been the basis of our society? Well, one of the core doctrines that we teach at Journey is this. Marriage is the exclusive covenantal union of one man and one woman in which such union is a lifetime commitment. That was God's intent from the beginning when he brought Adam and Eve together in the Garden of Eden, and that was Jesus' interpretation of what a marriage is supposed to be when he said to the religious leaders questioning him about divorce, haven't you read 
that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The biblical story begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. And anytime we deviate from God's design and Jesus' decree, we invite disaster. Just as the opposite but complementary forces of protons and electrons along with neutrons combine to hold the universe together, so does the union of male and female under God hold the structure of societies together. That's why I want to talk to you today about what the Bible says about marriage ceremonies. Because here's what I know, almost everyone here will be involved in a wedding ceremony uh, as uh, a bride, a groom, a bridesmaid, a groomsman, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a florist, a photographer, a coordinator, in some way, you will influence wedding ceremonies. I think it's important that we use that opportunity to reinforce the marriage relationship and communicate the sacredness of marriage to those attending. Why? Let me give you a couple reasons. The first is this, marriage is more than a social contract. It's a sacred covenant witnessed and guaranteed by God himself. You say, what's the difference? Well, a contract is an agreement made about keeping terms. A covenant is an agreement made about keeping trust. In contract, you sign on the line. In covenant, you walk the line. A contract focuses on the growth of self. A covenant focuses on the giving of self. A contract is enforced by the courts. A covenant is enforced by your character. In contract, two are connected until the agreement is broken. In covenant, two are committed until death do us part. God knew that human beings cannot possibly build a lifelong union on a private contract that can be easily canceled and cast aside on the basis of personal whims and weaknesses. He knew that a contract would not sustain the pains, pitfalls, and pressures of marriage between two inherently sinful and selfish human beings. Marriage that goes the distance demands more than a signed piece of paper authorized by the state. It requires the supernatural merging of lives and the binding of hearts that is possible in covenant alone. Here's a second reason. Marriage is a divine institution, not a human invention. One philosopher has said that purpose is in the mind of the inventor. Tim Keller writes, the fish must honor its design. It is designed for water, not for land. Real freedom is not living without restrictions. It's about finding the right ones. Since God invented marriage in the Garden of Eden when he brought Adam and Eve together, we must use the compass of the scriptures to find the original purpose for marriage. Then we must use that understanding to find direction for our own relationships. And time after time, the scriptures describe marriage as a covenant relationship. The Hebrew prophet Malachi says to men not to take lightly their vows because a man's spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. 
The Proverbs writer describes an unfaithful wife as one who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. These verses indicate that both husband and wife in marriage enters into a sacred covenant with God and with each other. And to betray your marriage vow then is to break a covenant. When a man and woman covenant together with one another, Les and Leslie Parrott write in their book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, God promises faithfulness to them and that helps couples keep the faith. They continue, God's covenantal faithfulness embodied in our partner makes a home for our restless hearts. It accepts our whole soul by saying, I believe in you and commit myself to you through thick and thin. Without faithfulness and the trust it engenders, marriage would have no hope of enduring for no couple can achieve deep confidence in the fidelity of themselves and each other until they first recognize God's faithfulness to them. Tim Keller writes, imagine a house with an A-frame structure. The two sides of the home meet at the top and hold one another up, but underneath, the foundation holds up both sides. So the covenant with and before God, he writes, strengthens the partners to make a covenant with each other. Marriage is therefore the deepest of human covenants. Friends, everything that God does in our lives that is eternally important is done on the basis of covenant. Covenant is the only way we get into heaven and it's the only way we get heaven into our lives and marriages. And as important as a marriage is to human flourishing, surprisingly, there is no outline in scripture for what a wedding ceremony should be. That's because the scriptures teaching on marriage do not merely reflect the perspective of any one culture or time. However, there seems to be three scriptural requirements for a couple to be considered married in the eyes of God. The first is a mutual commitment to be faithful to one person for a lifetime. The second is to fulfill whatever legal requirements there are in the culture in which they live. And the third is the physical consummation of the relationship. In the Hebrew scriptures, Ruth was considered the wife of Boaz when her closest relative took off his shoe in the presence of the elders of the city. That was the legal and social requirement that preceded their physical union. You can be married in God's eyes if you got married in a brief ceremony by a justice of the peace at the courthouse. My parents were married in the parlor of a Methodist preacher's home. It was a double wedding ceremony where my dad's older sister, Clara, and her husband, Bill, also got married at the same time. Only the preacher was present. From what I've been told, it was about a five-minute ceremony. My mom was 16. My dad was 18. They were married for 72 years. I think God honored that marriage. I want to set forth three principles that should guide us to planning a ceremony that honors God and reflects what he intended our marriages to be. Number one, since marriage is a sacred covenant, a wedding ceremony should be a significant life event. Jesus often used the traditional Jewish wedding ceremony to illustrate his relationship with the church. He said in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, when you begin to understand some of the background of how weddings took place in Jesus' day, you begin to understand what a significant event it was 
to people in that culture. So if you would, allow me to take a few minutes to describe how a Jewish wedding was typically put together. A young Jewish man tells his father that he's ready to take the hand and heart of a young Jewish girl in covenant marriage. A lengthy father-son talk ensues, sometimes lasting hours or even days. Finally, the father grants permission and the details such as what the payment for the bride will be or the dowry are worked out. Taking the initiative, the prospective bridegroom travels with his father to the home of the prospective bride. Upon arrival, the two fathers talk first and then the son expresses to the father of the potential bride, his desire to marry his daughter. He then tries to assure the father of his noble intentions to provide for and protect his would-be wife. At this time, he presents some sort of payment for the bride. As a father of two daughters, I'm still waiting on my payment uh, (laughs) for my girls. If the father of the future bride expects the payment, the young man can marry the daughter. With negotiations complete, the custom was for the young man's father to pour a cup of wine and hand it to his son. His son would turn to the young woman, lift the cup and hold it out to her saying, listen carefully, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer you. In other words, I love you and I'll give up my life for you if necessary. Will you marry me? The young woman had a choice. She could take the cup and return it and say no, or she could answer without saying a word by drinking the cup her way of saying, I accept your offer and I give you my life in response. After the wine is shared, a betrothal benediction is pronounced, symbolizing that a covenant relationship had been established. From that moment on, it's understood that the bride and bridegroom are set apart exclusively for each other. The groom and his father leave the bride's house, return to their own home. The groom remains there for a period of several weeks or months, separated from his bride. During this time of preparation, he busies himself with the task of building a house for his bride or at least an addition on to his parents' home. Meanwhile, the bride is getting together her wardrobe and preparing for married life. She's working to make her find the most beautiful dress available for her wedding day. As the months go by, she's ready and waiting for her groom Maybe today or tonight, my man is coming for me. She tells her friends who wait with her. She doesn't know the exact day. She only knows that his coming is imminent and she must be ready at a moment's notice. She awakens each morning with anticipation. Throughout the day, she looks into the distance, watching and waiting for her bridegroom. In the evening's darkness, she leaves her oil lamp burning as a sign that she's ready even if he were to arrive in the middle of the night. As soon as the groom finishes building the new home for his future family, he returns for his bride. Often the last touches on the house are completed toward the end of the day. So the groom calls together his best man and other groomsmen and leads a nighttime procession by torchlight to the house of his bride. As they approach the bride's home, the groom asks his companions, do you see the lamp burning? Yes, we do, his friends answer. It's burning brightly. She's ready for you. The groom and his friends sneak into the bride's house and announce their presence with a shout. Then he picks up his bride, carries her through the streets, proclaiming his joy. The bride and her attendants return with the groom to his father's house. Later, the bride and groom enter the house that he'd been building, and in the privacy of that place, they enter into a physical physical union for the first time and consummate the marriage. No wonder the first miracle Jesus performed was at a wedding feast. A covenant marriage designed by God represents everything Jesus Christ came for. Think about it. 
Christ left his father's house and came to earth to gain a bride for himself. The purchase price was his own blood, a new covenant in his blood shed on Calvary's cross. After his resurrection, Christ then returned to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride, the church. Now we are watching and waiting for the day when Jesus will return for his church and usher us into the marriage supper of the lamb and we will be with him forever. Friends, that's why the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. Therefore, when Christians get married, it should be considered a sacred ceremony. A wedding ceremony is the benchmark of beginning the highest of all human relationships. And such an important event should be marked by a significant start. I know many couples have adopted a more casual attitude to wedding ceremonies and they say their vows in strange and unique places. I've heard about weddings in airplanes and helicopters and on boats. Some couples have gotten married while skydiving, parasailing, or even dropping at the end, end of a bungee cord. Thankfully, nobody's ever asked me to do a wedding like that. <laughs> I've watched videos of couples getting married on roller coasters. And marriage definitely has its up and downs. But regardless of its volatile nature, it still seems appropriate, at least to me, to have some sort of ceremony that's commensurate with its importance. I know that can be taken to extreme. The average cost of a full wedding in 2020 was $19,000, according to the wedding website called The Knot. That's a significant drop from 2019's pre-COVID average cost of $28,000. And it's not unusual for wedding costs to reach $30,000 or $50,000. It's expensive to get married. I heard one father tell his daughter, if you elope, I'll give you 10,000 cash right now and provide the ladder. <laughs> but a wedding ceremony is a big deal. And it should be. When all you do is drive through a wedding chapel in Vegas with an officiant who looks like Elvis and sign some papers and plop down a few hundred bucks, it's easier to walk away feeling like you had a wild weekend rather than you made a commitment for life. But when you schedule a facility, send out invitations, buy overpriced dresses, rent tuxedos, order flowers, go through premarital counseling, read some books, go through a rehearsal, meet and mingle with weird extended family members, argue with your mother-in-law, take pictures, lose sleep, get weak knees and hyperventilate, you realize what you're doing is important and you say to yourself, I never wanna go through that again. <laughs> that event becomes etched in your mind. Here's a second principle. Since marriage is a sacred covenant, a wedding ceremony should retain traditions that reflect spiritual truths. A lot of people today scoff at all traditions and quickly discard them. People talk through the national anthem or wear ripped up jeans to a job interview. That's not sinful. They just see no value in doing something just because it's always been done that way. And we can understand that somewhat. Some traditions are meaningless and we could just as well do without them. I think that's true with weddings. There's a tradition that says it's bad luck for the bride and groom to see each other on the day of the wedding. But it's so much better to take pictures before the ceremony and not make everyone wait for an hour or two at the reception. I tell couples, if you want people to enjoy your wedding, give them something good to eat and don't make them wait to eat it. <laughs> if you saw the old movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, 
You know, it's the custom at some Greek weddings for people to spit at the bride as she comes down the aisle. That's supposedly a form of blessing, an expression of endearment. But that's a custom I think we could lose without losing much, don't you? We could discard that one. But there are some traditions that have value and need to be understood and retained. Traditions can communicate important truth or bring a sense of dignity to important events. Traditions remind us of our roots and provide us a sense of identity. When teenagers leave home, do you know what they miss? The family traditions. You'll hear them say, I remember going to church together and opening one present every Christmas Eve. I remember going to my grandparents every Thanksgiving. I remember we all sat at the same seat for dinner every night. Rather than ignoring or scoffing at all traditions, they need to be understood and retained if they have significance. I think Jesus taught a balanced attitude toward traditions. There were times Jesus broke traditions in favor of doing what is right. He often healed people on the Sabbath day. And when the religious authorities criticized him for breaking their tradition, he said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. But Jesus also kept some traditions. We read he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, his tradition. Every time we read that Jesus ate a meal, he paused and gave thanks. You know, there's no biblical command to pray before you eat, but Jesus retained that tradition. It had value. Same is true in a wedding ceremony. Some of our traditions are antiquated and probably meaningless, but some traditions are of value and need to be retained. We need to be wise to to discern which is which. In his book, Covenant Marriage, Fred Lowry explains where some of our wedding traditions come from and why. And I have to confess, I've performed countless weddings over the years, and I did not realize the meaning behind many of the symbols and traditions of a Christian wedding ceremony until I read that book. For example... Do you know why the family and friends of the bride and groom are seated on opposite sides of the sanctuary and the bride comes down the center aisle? That provides a covenant setting. Strong's Bible Concordance defines a covenant as a compact made by passing between pieces of flesh. The priest in the Old Testament would kill an animal and divide it in half. He'd set half the carcass on one side, half on the other. He'd walk between the split halves and make an irrevocable promise by saying, if I break this promise, may it be done to me as I've done to this animal. This wasn't a temporary pledge. There were no loopholes or parachutes. It was binding for a lifetime. When God made a covenant with Abram, the Genesis writer says he took various animals and cut them in two and God himself passed between the pieces according to Genesis 15, eight. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram to bless him and his descendants. When the bride comes down the middle aisle, the families on each side of the auditorium symbolizes the sacrifice they've each made in order for the bride and groom to enter into this covenant. You know what's behind the tradition of the white owl runner? The owl runner is a symbol of walking on holy ground. A covenant is not made merely between two people and their witnesses. A covenant is made in the presence of God and he's actively involved in the agreement since it is God that joins them together according to Jesus. When Moses was in the presence of God, he was to take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. We're to respect the presence of God in the white owl runner symbolizes we're walking on holy ground. Do you know why the parents are seated in places of honor at the wedding? Because they're paying $20,000 for it, duh. 
No, the parents of the bride and groom are an important part of the marriage covenant. They are making commitments too. When the father walks his daughter down the aisle, he and his wife are saying to the bride, we're endorsing this young man as God's choice of a husband for you and I'm now bringing you to him. Even though one father said giving his daughter to his son-in-law was like handing the keys of a priceless Ferrari to a gorilla. And if you've ever given a daughter away, you know exactly what I'm just said. I've almost always used their traditional wedding vows in wedding ceremonies that I've performed. They're not found in scriptures, but they communicate biblical truth about marriage and they've stood the test of time. I think it's hard to improve on for better or worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. I heard about a couple that asked the minister if they could change till death do us part to as long as we both shall love. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. The American concept of love is that love is an involuntary feeling. It's something you can involuntarily fall into and quickly fall out of. And when you've lost that loving feeling, it's gone. 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 Whoa, whoa, whoa. Some of you know that song and some of you are saying, preacher, you're so weird. (laughs) Scripture writers say that love is a matter of choice. It's something you decide to put on the same way we put on our clothes. We don't just fall into the closet and come out dressed. Paul says in Colossians, over all these virtues, put on love. The Apostle John says love is a matter of conduct. Love is a verb. John writes, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. One writer says the Bible does not call us to like our neighbor, to have affection and warm feelings toward him or her. No, the call is to love your neighbor And that must primarily mean displaying a set of behaviors. Since emotions can't be commanded, only actions, so it is action that the scripture writers are demanding of us when he calls us to love others. And again, Paul says love's a matter of commitment. It sticks, it stays. Paul wrote these concluding words to his famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And finally, the scripture says love is a matter of covenant. It's a covenant that mirrors our covenant God who promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Listen to me, friends. Jesus Christ was forsaken on a cruel Roman cross so that you and I would never be forsaken and that, so that we, through his power, could have the ability not to forsake those we love. This is why the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. Through the gospel, we get the power and the pattern for the covenant of marriage. The third and final principle Since marriage is a sacred covenant, a wedding ceremony should exalt Christ to all who witness it. Paul wrote to the Colossian believers, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Most of you invite friends and family members to your wedding ceremony who are not Christian or who are cultural Christians, meaning they're occasional churchgoers, but they're not full-time Christ followers. We need to take advantage of that opportunity and make the wedding ceremony a testimony to our living hope in Jesus Christ. 
You want people to walk away with the understanding Jesus is your Lord, he's the center of your home, and he makes all the difference in the world. Having raised two daughters, I know a little bit about braiding hair. I know it's hard and I was never able to do it. It fell apart every time I tried. For a long time, neither of the girls knew how to do it either, but my wife knew how to weave three strands together in a tight hold that looks beautiful and will actually stay in place. I've been told that it's the third strand of the braid that holds the other two strands together. The same is true with a rope. In fact, a three-stranded rope is stronger than a rope with two, four, or five strands. Why? Because with three strands, each part is constantly touching the other two, forming the strongest and tightest bond possible. In covenant marriage, God is that critical third strand. And by weaving a husband and wife into a tight relationship with himself, the three strands always touch each other, making the bond as strong as it can possibly be. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it like this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Now, look at this last statement. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Covenant marriage, as divinely designed, is a binding together of three persons. A man, a woman, and Almighty God. The first step to a happy marriage is always entering a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, let me say this to you. The greatest gift you can give your spouse is to be a genuine growing follower of Jesus. Nothing is more important because God through Jesus cut covenant with you and by the power of his Holy Spirit within, he can energize and equip you to keep the covenant with your spouse because marriage explains the gospel and the gospel explains marriage. Paul Tripp writes, when the shadow of the cross hangs over our marriage, we live and relate differently. We're no longer afraid to look at ourselves. We're no longer surprised by our, by our sin. We no longer have to work to present ourselves as righteous. We say goodbye to finger pointing and self-excusing. We abandon our record of wrongs. We settle issues quickly. And we do all these things because we know that everything we need to confess has already been forgiven. And what is needed for every new step we will take has already been supplied. We can live in the liberating light of humility and honesty, one needy, and tender sinner living with another needy and tender sinner, no longer defensive, no longer afraid, but together growing nearer to one another as we grow to be more like him. May God give us more marriage moments like that. Would you pray with me? So Father, I thank you that we have an opportunity to remember again the defining moment of marriage and all that it means. It goes way beyond just a man and a woman. We're rehearsing the first wedding that took place in the beginning. As you brought the man and a woman together and you said for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will be one flesh. And Jesus endorsed that idea of marriage and said what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Father, give us grace. Give us mercy. Give us forgiveness. Give us the ability to see marriage as a reflection of the gospel and to see the gospel explains marriage as we the bride wait for our bridegroom Jesus to return for what he has prepared for us. That is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.